UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Are we recording? Oh, great. Okay. Hey, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. Um, I have with me Paul Elder. He's had uh, it's three to five near-death experiences. Um, it's really amazing uh, what he's went through. He's a former CTV television news reporter and a mayor of a Canadian city. Paul Elder has spent a lifetime studying human nature from a human perspective. He's a survivor of a three-year near-death ex- three near near-death experiences, a drowning at the age of 12, a car accident at the age of 17, and a heart attack at the age of 41. Along with the trauma and subsequent beauty of death comes a series of spontaneous spiritual events, events that would rock his world, turning his belief system upside down, leaving him with some profound insights as to the true nature and the ultimate purpose of life. Now, he spent nearly a decade in radio and television as a news reporter. Elder ventured into a career in politics and business spanning more than 20 years. Forever grateful for his near-death experiences, his spiritual ins- Hey, Rob, um, your audio cut out. I can't, uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. I might, someone was calling my phone. I have to do not disturb. I'll have to edit now, sorry. I, and guys, I'm using my phone because I, my, I'm, my device, my computer is like compromised for some reason. So getting back to, um, Paul has had a, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> are we, Paul has had a, a long life as a broadcast and in politics, and he is the uh, CEO for the Monroe Institute and the Canada branch of the Monroe Institute, which I have huge respect for because you know i'm i love to practice try to practice out of body experiences i'm a huge fan in studying near-death experiences and consciousness and i just want to give him a big warm welcome to the show paul thank you for joining me how are you a pleasure thank you ron and i appreciate it yeah like um what okay so you had your near-death experiences right but like how did you what made you want to explore them to the point that made you because you've obviously You've had a, a, a very illustrious career as in, in as a newscaster, and then also as you know uh, uh, in politics. So you didn't probably need to do that. You didn't need to explore consciousness, but something drew you to explore consciousness. And you didn't just explore consciousness; you became the CEO of the Monroe branch, the Monroe Institute in Canada. So what took you down that route, and what why the the such the the you know, opening the Monroe Institute in Canada? Well, it, um, I should put it this way. It wasn't 
it wasn't necessarily a choice, a, a physical choice or a conscious choice of mine. It was um, sort of um, unavoidable, if you will. I, uh, I had, um, I mean, I grew up on a small farm in the middle of Saskatchewan, in the middle of nowhere, with um, 10 brothers and sisters, and uh, we didn't have very much of anything. And uh, I had this experience, uh, I drowned when I was 12 years old and had this amazing experience in which I found myself floating out of my body. And uh, it just absolutely knocked my socks off. But when you're 12 and weird stuff happens, you go, that was weird. And you go on with life, you know, get in trouble, make another slingshot, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, I really didn't appreciate or really even know how much it had changed me until you know, that particular experience, until many, many years later. And um, that was when I was 12 years old. And uh, it was, it, it would sort of sneak up on me, like I, I would know things intuitively. And um, uh, even I could find things in my mind, I could see them in my mind. And so um, my sisters you know, can all acknowledge that because the, if something was lost or missing, they might say, well, ask Paul, you know, and um, which mm -hmm. led them to believe that, you know, because I could kind of see where it was, which sometimes led them to believe that I was the one who took it. And uh, sometimes I did. That's how you build your own legend. <laughs> like over there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was, uh, it really wasn't until um, another experience happened that um, when I was 14 that really profoundly affected me, um, but it was in, in a way that was so confusing and so, wow, what the heck just happened? Um, <clears throat> uh, we had in, my, my, my little brother and I had to, we were altar boys in, in the Catholic church in our wee little village in Saskatchewan. And uh, on Sundays, we would hear sometimes when we're having church services, we would hear these wild turkeys gobbling and floating or flying about or, you know, in the yard, in the churchyard. And so one Saturday I was walking on my way home from my cousin's house and uh, going past this old Catholic church, big old thing. And uh, I noticed in a row of trees, these trees were probably, I don't know, 60 feet to 70 or 80 feet high. And I noticed there's a huge nest on the top of one of these trees. And I had no idea that eagles or that uh, turkeys couldn't fly. <laughs> Reminds me of WKRP in Cincinnati, right? And uh, <laughs> had no idea. And so I see this huge nest on top of the tree and I'm thinking that could be the turkey nest. So I crawled up this darn tree all the way to the top and I'm just right underneath the, you know, it's a huge nest just over top of me. And I'm standing on my tiptoes on a branch below the nest, hanging on with my hands on the smaller branch that's holding this nest and trying to see into it. But it's just like that far away. I can't see it. I can't get in. And I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute. What if a turkey reaches out and pecks me in the face? Or what if there's babies in there? You know, and I'm pulling and tugging on, trying to get on my, my tip of my toes. And I'm, you know, and while I'm doing that, and I'm pulling and pulling and pulling. I'm trying to get up. And all of a sudden, the branch I'm standing on broke. And I instantly went falling down through this tree. And probably oh the, only thing that, the only thing that saved my life, probably, is the fact that I hit 
bigger branches on the way down. How far but up were you? Probably 60 feet. Oh my God. Yeah, like five or six stories, you know. But I, I fell down and, and uh, the next thing I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I am You're quite floating. the adventurer. You, yeah, you're I'm quite floating. the adventurer. <laughs> yeah, totally. Next thing I know, I'm floating in this tree, watching myself hit branches and, you know, knock me around until I landed on the ground with a big thud uh, after, you know, hitting three or four branches on the way down. And that's probably the only thing to save my life. The, and it knocked me, you know, the first, the first branch obviously knocked me out, you know. And so I'm watching myself falling through the tree. And it was just such a bizarre thing that never happened before like that until I land on the ground, knock the wind out of me. And finally, um, you know, I'm in the tree looking down saying, get up. And the physical me on the ground with the wind knocked out of me, suddenly went, and I'm laying there and, uh, and it was the most puzzling thing. I'm looking up into this tree and I cannot believe what happened. I watched myself falling out of a tree, <laughs> which is probably a metaphor for uh, another bad joke. <laughs> that boy ain't been long out of the trees, you know. But it that probably affected me more than anything else because there was something so powerful in that. It taught me that you know that there's a, there's another part of us that isn't this physical body. There's another part of us that you know is beyond you know the physical nature if you will and uh, so that stayed with me for many years and when i was 17 i was in a i got a, in a car accident um with a 1965 ford fairlane or something like that this is before the time of seat belts and uh, we rolled end to end and at around 85 miles an hour and it um yeah, <laughs> it it knocked me unconscious, and you know this is out in Saskatchewan in the in late November uh, or December, whatever it was, and you know freezing, freezing cold, and uh, um, knocked out cold, and I, I lost a kidney, and I got a punctured uh, lung, and a whole bunch of other things, and and um, but I had this experience in which you know because there was myself, and my two friends. And everybody was unconscious. Um, and I, this being, that's all I can say, was keeping me warm. And it turns out, as I find out many, many years later, that this was spirit guide, whatever that meant. And this being or creature kept me warm and caused me to wake up just um, pretty much at a point where, because we're in the middle of nowhere, you know, in central Saskatchewan in the middle of the wintertime. And the, probably the only car that was going to be coming by that night was coming down the highway, you know, and I'm, I'm probably we're probably 50 or you know, 80 feet or 100 feet away from the road and woke me up and got my attention that I have to I have to run to this road and and, you know, flag down this car and uh, didn't realize that I had, you know, a punctured lung and, uh, and a ruptured kidney. And, but I made it to the road sort of on my hands and knees just in time. And uh, the car, you know, hit the, I can remember the gravel flying and everything else. And this car hit the brakes and um, didn't realize that I was covered with blood and uh, had a, you know, concussion and everything else. And uh, these guys said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll go and get help. We'll call the police, you know. And so um, I headed back into this 
field where we were all had been thrown out of this car. And I was actually sitting in the passenger side of the front seat. And um, my last, I had no recall until about a week and a half later, but and long story short, the ambulance finally came and uh, whisked us off to the hospital in bigger Saskatchewan. And, um, and then I fell asleep or went into, I don't know what it was, coma or something for a couple of days and um, had no recollection of what had occurred that, you know, I was actually in the hospital. So it was a real shock when I kind of woke up in the hospital and was like, whoa, you know, with the, and, and this is the funny thing about it because I'm sitting in the hospital when I became aware and they had those little table thingies that uh, go over top of the bed that you can eat from. And there's a little, if you open it up, there's a little mirror in them. And I was just, had no idea where I was. I opened this thing up and I'm looking at myself and you have to realize that this was like 1968 or something. And um, in those days, we all had long hair like that, right? <laughs> and I had um, a huge um, crack in my skull or whatever. And so oh they, had they had shaved my, my, I'm looking at this monk, looking back at me with a shaved head up here and long hair here. And I was like, who the, <laughs> anyways, that uh, experience then took me to, you know, whole new places. Like who was it? Who I could feel the warmth of this being or whatever that was keeping me awake or waking me up in time, you know? So it was just sort of mystical to me. And then, uh, but, you know, here's the thing when you're, you know, um, when you're young and, uh, and I think it's a really, you know, people will ask me because I've actually had five near-death experiences and, and people will say things like five, how come so many, you know, like I knew, you know, and, <laughs> and the only thing I can think about is that if you show a 12 year old farm boy that there's no such thing as dead, that's dangerous, really, because yeah, what what oh, what oh here you hold my beer what you know what's the worst that could happen I get killed no there's no such thing right so just sort of after that I mean I kind of you know it was like lived life from a stature of ten feet tall and you know and and I had sort of here's the you know like the precursor for a near death experience in Saskatchewan is here hold my beer you know. And, watch this, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so it, yeah so that led me to you know uh, you know all of these different extremes and um, probably the most significant one though was when I you know I went on and you know I, I worked uh, you know as you mentioned in broadcasting for about 10 years I was a rock and roll disc jockey back in the 70s and then moved into news and uh, and finally I worked for CTV uh, news out of uh, Calgary Alberta and um, after that, I got into, and not by choice, but I was sort of pushed into politics and um, had certain experiences in politics. But I became the mayor of this little city called Swift Current, Saskatchewan. Um, wonderful little community, about 17, 18,000 people, I think, and uh, <clears throat> for a whole bunch of years. And you know, it was a wonderful community. We probably had the lowest crime rate in, you know, in all of Canada. 80% of the community were um, fundamental Christian uh, Mennonite or you know, somewhere about that. So um, what happened is, and we were playing, and, uh, you know, I still 
played hockey. So I was, we were playing old timers hockey on a Sunday morning and um, I had a heart attack in the middle of the hockey game. And, oh my God. and essentially died, you know, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And, uh, <clears throat> and I had this amazing experience, <clears throat> excuse me, of you know, becoming aware as, you know, as I'm lying in the, in the ambulance and we're screeching off to the hospital. And this young lady, the uh, paramedic is asking me questions and, you know, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm trying to respond and I clicked out or, or you know, went unconscious for, for uh, I don't know how long, but at some point I jolted back into my body and she was asking me questions and I'm trying to respond and it sounded like I'm talking in a barrel and um, which seemed really strange to me. And while I'm laying there, everything started to change and pretty soon I felt myself floating out of my body or I didn't know I was out of my body, but it was like, I'm floating up to the ceiling of the ambulance. And it was a funny occurrence because it wasn't about, you know, three weeks before that, because this was early in the, in the hockey season. And uh, my wife and I, we had a couple of friends, one who had died playing floor hockey um, just about two months before that. And then another friend of ours, Bernie had a heart attack, you know, and we're all like 40, 39 years old kind of thing. And uh, he survived, you know, but my wife was giving me hacks. She's saying, you know, cause we'd head off on, on weekend tournaments and, you know, during the week, we're sitting behind a desk, you know, and on weekends, we're warriors, you know, out in hockey tournaments. And my wife is giving me heck. It's like, geez, you're not 20 anymore. You're 40. You know, what are you going to kill yourself? And I'm like, geez, woman, I've never been in better shape. And guess what? <laughs> that, that came back to my mind as I'm floating up to the ceiling. And I'm thinking, oh, she's going to be so pissed off. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And I... I that's all I can think about. And so the next thing I know, I'm not in the ambulance anymore. I'm floating in my house in the hallway, watching my wife and my our two kids getting ready for church. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should have stayed home and gone to church. <laughs> and, but I'm so watching wait, you're them. Near, I'm so, so sorry, Paul. This, in this near-death experience, you didn't just leave the ambulance. You actually went to the scene of your home where you saw your wife and kids. Yes. So you actually astral project, well, no, I guess OBE and ND is similar. Like you pretty actually much, yeah. astral projected to your home scene. Right, yeah, pretty much. Oh my God. And it was just sort of instantaneous and I'm floating in the living room, like I say, watching them getting ready for church. And when, when you're in this state, are you, and I'm so, I'm sorry, I'm so inquisitive, like, but that's kind of like my, my job, right? But yeah. like, like, so, what are you feeling? Are you feeling worried? Are you feeling uh, euphoria because you're out of your body? Or are you feeling, um, are you worried about your family? Or you, you kind of know where I'm going with that, right? Yeah, um, actually, mostly confused. Um, yeah. Because there's a part of me, by that point, this has happened, you know, to me a couple of times, three times, you know, with the falling out of the tree thing, where I'm seeing myself or seeing other things while I'm not in my body, you know? And, you know, so it was, it was a little confusing, but in my mind, while I'm floating in my house, I knew it was happening. I, I knew I was dying and I'm, you know, and I'm saying goodbye, you know, in my mind to my wife and my kids. 
knowing that, you know, they'll be just fine eventually, you know, it's going to be a shock for a while. And so I had, I'm saying goodbye to them and acknowledging that. And then all of a sudden, boom, I'm back in the ambulance and I'm floating at the ceiling of the ambulance. And I could literally feel, you know, <laughs> because I exited again, I could literally feel the inside layers, the insulation, you know, and the metal as I'm going through the roof of the ambulance. But I'm watching, I'm floating there back there, watching this, you know, paramedic young lady, you know, working on me, putting an oxygen mask and that sort of stuff. And I find I'm saying goodbye to myself, laying in the, you know, on the cot in the ambulance. And and then I knew, and then it was just like I'm pulled out of the ceiling of the ambulance. And that's what I was mentioning. I could feel, you know, the insulation inside and the metal finally as I came out of the ambulance. And I'm floating above the ambulance while it's, you know, with all the lights on and the siren going, you know, zooming, you know, zooming through town. I'm floated about 10 feet above the ambulance, just going, whoa. And then all of a sudden, everything, or not all of a sudden, but everything gradually began to change and to turn dark. And it was like I'm in a fog. You know, I was still kind of aware. And then it was like I can see the, a light of some kind. And, but I wasn't sure if that light was here in my mind. But in the distance, everything sort of turned foggy and gray. And then I'm zooming really fast. And I am going home. And that was all that was in my mind. And it reminded me now, I mean, much later, of the movie E.T. when that first came out years and years ago. And, you know, E.T. is kind of really sick and he's in a coffin-like thing. And then the spaceship comes back and his heart lights up and he goes, home, home, home. And that's what I felt like. I'm going home and I just wanted nothing more. And I'm just streaking home and then all of a sudden, boom, and I'm in the hospital. <laughs> and they'd, you know, cut my clothing off and, uh, you know, and they're pumping, you know, um, intervenous into me and things like that too, uh, you know. So it was an interesting, really an interesting um, experience that because for, I think for an hour and a half, um, the blockage in my heart uh, continued. And uh, so they're doing various things. They're, you know, giving me, you know, to intervene as different kind of drugs. And then finally they, um, they give me a drug, I think if my memory serves me correct, it's called streptokines. And that's, you know, to get rid of a blockage in the heart and really, you know, and, and it was really strange because, um, oh, before that, <laughs> back up a little bit, I'm laying in the hospital emergency bed with all the machinery hooked up, you know, right next to me, there's a heart machine and monitoring and it's beeping and doing all of those things. And I'm watching the graph and I was, you know, actually, when I first got back, a very, you know, um, profane word came out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't fire truck. <laughs> and because I didn't want to be back. It was like, no, now, now the pain is back, right? And everything hurt. And so I'm watching this heart monitor beside my bed. And it would be going like, doom, 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 doom. And all of a sudden, it would go really fast. And then it would slow down almost to flat line and then back again. And I found myself cheering for the flat line. It was like, you can do it. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> but at some point, uh, they, uh, they gave me this, a shot of the streptokines. And within just a few minutes, um, I vomited. And 
I felt better. It's like, okay, I'm going home. And they said, mm, no, not so much. Um, you know, so it did actually, it, what happens in those situations after 90 minutes, it, um, it probably destroyed or, you know, killed 20% um, or 25% of my heart muscle. And uh, oh my so God. I, was in the ho I was in the hospital for about, uh, I don't know, a week or so, something like that. And, um, you know, so what happens, you know, in those situations is eventually that, you know, the, that damage, the injury in the heart turns into, um, uh, what's the word for it? <laughs> like scar tissue, you know, and, uh, you know, so affected by that, uh, you know, for, you know, for many, many years, but it, you know, it, I, I sort of went on with life afterwards. It's like, whoa, that was cool. But guess what happened after that? After that, I began to have spontaneous out-of-body experiences. I would suddenly wow. find myself floating at the ceiling of my bedroom. And <clears throat> it wasn't, you know, I, in looking back at it, I had heard about out-of-body experiences and certainly about near-death experiences because I'd had those, you know, freaky things happen to me when I was a kid. And, but I had watched a television interview in around 1981 with a fellow named Bob Monroe. And on this interview, they, he was talking about his new book that he had called Journeys Out of the Body. And I thought, that's cool, you know? And, and he, you know, so anyway, I went to the library and I borrowed this book and I was living in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at that time. So like 10 years earlier than this happening with the heart attack. And I borrowed the book and I read it from cover to cover. And I thought that is so interesting, but this guy's a nut job, you know? And I took it back to the library, forgot all about it. Yeah. 10 years later, I'm floating. I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm floating at the ceiling of my bedroom, looking down at my bed. And I, my body is there and my wife. And I'm just like, holy crap, Monroe wasn't crazy. And I went on to have, you know, a pretty profound experience passing through walls and everything else and being completely and totally aware and conscious while I'm floating out of my body. So after that, I didn't sleep at all, um, you know, that night. Um, the next day I headed back to the library and I found out that Bob Monroe had written another book called Far Journeys. And uh, in that book I discovered, you know, I read it from cover to cover and I discovered that he had started the center. Um, he, he was a former executive director, um, you know, and uh, a producer, I should say of radio shows back in the 50s and 60s and um, so had you know a great deal of means to be able to to do things and he began to have these experiences spontaneous experiences and he kept track of it he wrote down meticulously recorded everything that happened and um, longer story short um, he started he was so intrigued by it and when he wrote this book called journeys out of the body which became sort of a international bestseller um, and I'm not, I'm not sure, but much like Raymond Moody, who coined the, the term um, near-death experience, Bob Monroe is sort of accredited with, you know, creating the, the term out-of-body experience. And uh, so what I found out, though, is that in that long, that 10-year period of time or whatever, that he had created a center in Virginia um, called the Monroe Institute, in which he had developed and patented special um, 
frequencies you know, used through stereo headphones that could take people to a deep state of consciousness with what she called mind awake, body asleep. So literally um, could take you into a dream state while your mind is awake and your body sleeping. And um, they call, he actually got a patent, received a patent for it because it was provable in independent laboratories and something he called hemispheric synchronization or hemisync. And um, had this you know, facility created at the, near Charlottesville, Virginia, where um, people from all over the world would, could attend and um, they could have this experience with this you know, patented process of listening on stereo headphones to special frequencies that were taking them into deep places so they could explore their own consciousness, perhaps go out of body, um, you know, about a whole bunch of different things. And when I found out about that, I thought, I have got to go. And so I did that. And my first opportunity, um, I headed off to Virginia and uh, for what they call a gateway program. Um, and had, you know, <laughs> I've done the gateway program, by the way. I I I know there's a there's a version of it online. I've I've at least tried it. It's very long. It's like it's it's like four videos long. It's it's very it's very long. The gateway program, right? Or I mean, that's a different question. I'll let you finish your story. I just want to let you know I've tried. I'm so into Robert Monroe. Like that's why I'm so happy. I wanted to have you on the show. I'm so I'm so into this stuff. It's I love hearing your story. I'm sorry. No no worries. Well the um. The gateway program itself is a six day program. All right. So people from all over the world. Now there is, you know, I think there is a um, uh, sort of a, a lesser version that people can buy and, and, you know, and listen to at home. But the real effect is in, and the real power of it is in going to the, to, you know, the Institute in Virginia. And um, yeah, it's a six day long program and people have prof- profound experiences. No, you have you have your own. Do you have your own center there in Saskatchewan, like the, the Robert yes. Monroe Canada? Yeah. yeah. So you built? Did you kind of build that there? You were you responsible for that? Well, yes. <laughs> I didn't build the you know the building. I, I bought it and renovated it. But the no, um, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I created. Yeah, yeah. So well, actually, what happened is while I was in Virginia. And I went to the first, what they call the gateway program, which is sort of the prerequisite, the first one. And um, I returned several times within a, a period of a year because, you know, I wanted, because it was so, you know, mind blowing and so, so cool. And the thing that I learned that even if I, if I would go there and, you know, because it was such a beautiful, you know, peaceful place where you're, you know, spend the week inside, you know. And, and what I learned is that even if nothing, you know, outrageous or, you know, extreme happened, it would still be one of the best weeks of my life. Um, you know, just that profound sense, you know. So I returned a number of different times and I got to, you know, meet Bob Monroe and to, you know, meet, you know, some of the other people. And I got to go into or um, what they call the isolation chamber, which is sort of a specially built booth um, you know, and back in those days, you know, it was sort of rudimentary kind of computer science, you know, and some people, you know, you could, um, you could get to have them monitor your brain waves, be like the skull cap with a whole bunch of diodes and, you know, gooey stuff in your hair. But I got to spend some time in the isolation chamber and 
some of the experiences that I had and some of the experience that I was able to tell them about got somebody's attention. And um, one day I was, or I was introduced over time to some um, pretty um, amazing people. And Bob Monroe and I hit it off, um, uh, you know, really well because, um, you know, we got, we got along very well. Because um, Bob had been in broadcasting and, and he also liked the fact that, you know, that I was in politics as well because he had, you know, um, taken a look at some of that. So he tried to encourage me back and Bob died around 1995 or 1996, I think. And he was trying to get me to become a trainer at the Institute in Virginia. And at that particular time, I owned an insurance brokerage firm and I was the mayor of this little city of Swift Current, Saskatchewan. And I was like, gee, Bob, I, I haven't got time. I've got, you know, a bid. I got two businesses to run. I'm running a city and I'm running an insurance company. And I just didn't have the time for it. And um, anyway, he, you know, he, he pushed and, uh, so we got along, you know, really well. And um, about in 1996 or whatever it was, 1995, I um, when Bob passed away, um, his daughter, Lori Monroe, took over. And by then I had, you know, settled down a little bit, you know, with my activity. And um, so Lori, you know, called me and I said, sort of like, that daddy always said you'd be a good trainer, you know, and, can you do that? You know, and I was like, well, yeah, I, you know, okay. <laughs> and, but she also wanted me to encourage me to start, you know, a center in Canada here and, you know, on, cause I was living on Vancouver Island. And, uh, and so longer story short, I thought, well, I don't, you know, I have to find the right place before I do that. So I became a trainer at the Institute of Virginia and uh, primarily um, what happened for the rest of this story, um, some of those I mentioned, some I was introduced or met some really um, interesting people, and not the least of which was a guy named um, Dale uh, Dale Graff, who was the Pentagon director of this top secret program called Stargate, which was like an intelligence program <clears throat> using uh, trained um people uh you know and and then i found out that that this voice that was in the headphones when i would be in the isolation chamber the voice that would be asking me questions as i'm you know dropping into a real deep zone and a voice would come on and say tell us what's happening it would jolt me out of it you know this guy's name was skip and it turns out and i had no idea who these people were Turns out that this guy named Skip Atwater was the former Captain Fred Atwater, the manager of um, the Stargate top secret program at Fort Meade in Maryland. Where oh they trained, my God, that's yeah, insane. They, yeah, where they trained what they call remote viewers. And really the, the name itself, it, you know, should be called remote sensing, but um, Skip Atwater, and when he retired, I mean, they, see what happened is they, um, they're running this facility and it's in response to the Russians or the Soviets back in those days. They had intelligence in the early seventies that the Soviets had trained psychics who could spy on America. They could literally sit in a darkened room in Moscow and draw diagrams of missile sites in America. 
And of course, that really concerned them. So intelligence services, CIA, NSA. And so CIA, there was a fellow named uh, Kit Green. And um, they, they, they had no idea where to go with this. Like, is this possible? And so they had worked with a couple of scientists <clears throat> uh, or physicists, I should say, um, testing psychic abilities at, uh, out at, um, in California, Menlo Park, the Stanford Research Institute. And there were a couple of scientists uh, there. Um, let me see here, Russell Targ and Hal Putoff. And these guys were actual physicists. I and mean, they were you know, not just some you know, weird California psychic. They were testing psychic abilities and they also had real credentials in creating lasers and different uses for lasers and things like that. So, and they had done some work for CIA or intelligence services before that. So they, Kit Green headed out to California to see if this was a possibility with what the Soviets were doing and basically coming out there, you know, with three questions is like, is this possible? And, you know, Dr. Targ and Putoff said, yeah, probably. And it begged the second question is like, well, how do we defend against it? And, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but they essentially said, good luck, you know. And, but it begged the third question is that, is this something we could do? Could we learn how to do this? And also paraphrasing, Dr. Targ and Putoff might be thinking, hey, government contract, you know. So anyway, they were given a contract. Um, Kit Green was the CIA officer at that time. In order to develop, they had been doing, they had been testing people um, ability and you know, psychic abilities. And they were working at that time with specifically with two very psychic people. One guy named Ingo Swan, who was a, um, uh, a sort of a corner store psychic and an artist from New York City. And another guy named Pat Price, who was a former um, homicide detective from Los Angeles. And these guys were doing some pretty amazing things that, you know, they were testing them and their testing was so far beyond possibilities. You know, like back in those days, they would do things. Okay, here's five cards on the table. One of them has a picture underneath. Which one is it? And their success rate of, you know, describing which one and all of these things was just so profound. So those two guys in particular were used as psychic examples, if you will. So Kit Green goes out to California and they get a contract, an uh, eight-month contract, I think, for something around $55,000 to see if they could develop or create something that would be competitive with, with the Soviets using psychic abilities. And so after the eight months, and you know, and now this is just stories I've been told, you know, so um, apparently um, Kit Green heads back out there, you know, they kind of let him know he's back in Arlington, Virginia, at, you know, near you know, CIA headquarters. And um, they apparently, you know, let them know the process. And most of this process was set up to occupy the left brain. So that, it's, you know, it's when you occupy your left brain with boring, menial stuff, your left brain is the actual, the enemy of psychic functioning, right? <laughs> your left brain keeps you in the body, keeps you healthy, keeps you alive, keeps you all those things. It's when you let go of that and move into 
that drifty state because uh, the right hemisphere of our mind is connected with the entire rest of the universe. Seriously. <laughs> and I've found that out and proven it, you know, many, many times. So. Wait, when you say that, like, how do you mean, do you mean, cause I was going to ask you like, cause I'm so into Psy, you know, I think Psy is one of the, the biggest forms of, of, uh, of, of, of the paranormal that we can actually prove, you know, like, and, and I love the stories about all the people you just talked about. They're all luminaries in my mind, like, especially Ingo Swan. And, you know, I was a huge Art Bell fan. I have a, I have a poster behind me of Art Bell. Like, you know, I, I was, you know, so like, I, I know about all these people, like, and, and, and the people in the Stargate program, but I love how you tie Psy right in with, uh, with OBE, an NDE and, and being from the Monroe Institute, you would do that because you explore consciousness. Like, and, and that's what this all ties into. Cause I can ask you, what do you think triggers an NDE or what do you tr think triggers an OBE? Or I can ask you, where do you think Psy comes from? Or do you think we're all connected? But I think you would answer yes to all those. So when you just said what you just said about how the right hemisphere of the brain is connected to the universe, I think that's a much bigger point. Like, that's kind of, I think, is what ties everything together here, right? Everything that I just mentioned. Right. Well, it's our, that's, when you consider creation and everything else, I mean, every single one of us, I, you see, well, sort of a little ahead of my story, but our innate ability, remote viewing, remote sensing is an innate ability that every human being possesses, all right? It's that part of us that, I mean, we, and you've all, everybody's experienced this. You can be sitting in the middle of nowhere, say in a mall or in a park or somewhere, and you just get a sense that somebody's watching you, right? And you turn around and sure enough, somebody is. What part of you knew that? What part of a mom knows her kid's in trouble 3,000 miles away? It's that part that is innate to the human body or the human experience. All right. So we are literally connected. It's, it's like when you just know you have a gut intuition about something's going to happen and it does. What part, you know, what part of you knew that? All right. And, the reality and why, is, think about this, uh, Paul, uh, we are like, why is it sometimes we get like some of us that aren't as psychic? Like I'm, I feel like I'm starting to come into my abilities, but this is another question. And why is it? It seems like I get like all like psychic warnings as compared to psychic knowings. Like, I get like the, 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 that's not, I can ask you that later, but I, I like to figure it if it's on my mind. So that way I get it out. So you'll remember it. You know, like we get, I get psychic warnings, not say, so like, I mean, I do get some psychic knowings. Like my intuition is pretty good. Like I can predict, sometimes I can predict exact scores of games, which is really good. So I, I would guess I am, but my psychic warnings are way more. I know exactly when something bad's going to happen. I, it, it just tells me, you know what I mean? I, I don't know what that is. Like it's, it's a, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, no, no worries. That, that, that is precisely what that is. The, you know, and this is part of something, uh, uh, you know, and I'll get back to that a little bit in the, in, in, you know, as this sort of unfolds um, every single, you know, um, every single human being is connected to that, all right? And so in the process of remote viewing in this thing that they teach or that they taught then, um, because of, you know, to finish up the story or it won't make sense, okay? <clears throat> so in this particular example at that time when, so we got Kit Green 
and he's heading back out to California. The eight months is over. They finished. Ingo Swan, for the most part, was the guy who put it all together. So Ingo is knew he had the sense of it that it had to do the ability comes from occupying the left brain with a boring menial task and and that allows us to move into the right hemisphere of our mind which is connected literally to the rest of the universe including et including anything else that you want and um, and i can assure you uh, you know because i became a trainer of the monroe i was the uh, um, remote viewing trainer at the Monroe Institute with Skip Atwater, with Captain Atwater for like 10 years. And I've trained, including here on the island, I've trained probably 3,900 to almost 4,000 people. And I have not run into a single person who just didn't get it, all right? Now, it's like every other skill or ability, practice helps, you know, but, you know, it's sort of like, some are better at it than others. Like everybody can learn to play the piano to some degree, but only a few get to go to a Carnegie Hall kind of thing, right? So yeah. it's like, it's not, the skill is not spread evenly. And there's some science around it that really is uh, quite remarkable about why that is or how that happens, right? So it's about letting go and trying getting out of the left brain and allowing that intuition to come up inside. You know, now the in you know in the CIA and in the you know the Stargate program, you know they refer to it as remote viewing. The reality is, it's probably more like remote sensing. All right, but it's it is totally an innate ability that everybody has. <clears throat> so just just to blend this back in, um, so Kit Green heads back to California. He's been instructed on how this process works that Engel Swan put together, and Engel put it together knowing that in order to do this, we got to occupy the left brain with a boring menial task. And we have all had that experience. When have you had that experience? When you occupy your left brain, what happens, right? So even things like mowing the lawn, boring menial task, you know, or driving is probably one of the most profound states. You can be driving if you're out on the road for three, four hours, and three hours goes by and you get where you're going, you go, holy crap, that three hours, it was the driving that was occupying your left brain and allowing your mind to move into, into the right hemisphere, which is connected to everything. And in that three hours, you were absent to some degree. You were finishing conversations that you had, you know, and arguments and finishing thoughts and all sorts of things that, you know, that occurred in your life. And you get to where you're going, it's like, holy crap, you know? So it establishes that link, right? And so anytime, and this is part of what we teach in remote viewing, if you want to do remote sensing, or if you want to move in, into psychic potential or ability, occupy your left brain, get relaxed with a boring menial task, okay? So what they did, um, so here is, Kit Green heading back to uh, California after the eight months. And uh, the stories vary on this, but one of the things that I was told by, um, by Skip uh, Atwater was that Kit, um, apparently <clears throat> he had a summer home, <clears throat> excuse me, he had a summer home in Virginia and um, 
so they instructed him as to how this is going to work. So basically what they were doing was taking geographical coordinates of any place on the planet. So the remote viewer guy or gal cannot know anything about it, right? It's totally blind. And so what they were doing, they said, okay, all you have to do is write down the geographical coordinates of the planet of where this target is. And our two guys are going to describe that location, all right? Seems pretty outrageous, right? But all they needed is a target number, actually, something to focus on. So Kit, uh, as, as a, to my understanding, was going to use a photograph or something of his summer home in the hills in Virginia. And so he, he was instructed, okay, take photographs, put it in an envelope, this is the feedback for afterwards, and uh, seal up the envelope and just put the coordinates in the front of it. And so anyway, gets to California. And from what I've been told that um, starts the process and won't even let them touch the envelope. It's like here, you know, you can see it, you know, here's the number. And so the two of them, Ingo Swan and um, Pat Price, begin their process that they called remote viewing. And both of them started off talking about a forested, hilly area, which made sense because it was in, you know, the forests of Virginia, <clears throat> in the mountains of Virginia. <clears throat> and then Pat Price apparently went way off and he's talking about an underground secret bunker. And he even named some of the names of the people that supposedly worked there in this bunker and even gave the names that he envisioned on file cabinets. And it had to do apparently with the game of pool and some of these um, names in the file cabinet. So there was a like a file cabinet with eight ball and you know and cue stick and, and stuff like that. <clears throat> and so from what I was told is like that Kit Green is like, oh my God, this is my summer home, underground bunker, you know. <clears throat> so Apparently he heads back, you know, kind of ticked off because he wasted eight months and 50,000 bucks. Heads back to Virginia, to Langley, and then a few weeks later heads out to his summer home or something like that and uh, drives into the yard and he's, you know, still ticked off about it and gets out with his suitcase and briefcase into the yard and looks up on the hill. Oh, one of the things that, that uh, Pat Price had described was large communication towers, including something that would describe the first satellite dishes, like 17 feet of aluminum, you know, big old communication, things like that, which, you know, the um, Kit Green thought was crazy. And so anyway, he noticed apparently something glint, you know, and climbs up a hill behind his house and uh, gets up to the top. And um, sure enough, here's the communications tower. Here's some uh, big satellite dishes and stuff like that. and. Uh, Next thing he knows, he is being hauled over because he has just encroached on a super top secret facility that run by the NSA. That oh was so God. secret, the CIA didn't know anything about it. And this was up behind his you know, house, apparently. Right? And so that blew everything, the doors off everything. And guess what? The file names and the cabinets, Pat Price was correct. The names of some of the people that worked there, he was correct. And so this completely unraveled their minds and they thought there has got to be a leak 
somebody, there's no way that somebody could have done this. So they did a big investigation to see how this got leaked out and came to the determination that no, that was pretty legitimate. So longer story short, you know, and 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 realize that I'm, you know, I'm, you know, sort of because I wasn't there. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm just recalling the stories as I was told. But uh, longer story short, they said, holy crap, that is pretty cool. Pat Price was so accurate in some of the things that he had done. And Pat Price um, did most of his remote sensing um, using a microphone. He would simply go into his, his you know, quiet spot and he would talk. Perhaps, um, you know, with his eyes closed or whatever, moving into the front. And he would just describe what, what he's sensing and what he's getting. So they would record it and then they would transcribe it later on. And uh, so anyway, they this blew all their minds. And so it began that, you know, they were awarded um, through the Pentagon and through other sources or whatever, through CIA. They were awarded contracts and they set up the, it became initially was called, um, oh gosh, I can't remember now. Um, don't ever get old. It really sucks. I can't remember. <laughs> it, it, the first, yeah, it was, it was first was called Scanate. And then it became Grill Flame and then finally um, uh, Stargate. And so, and this operated for like 23 years. And they did some amazing, amazing things that is not possible to, you know, ever, you know, in, in every sense, you know, and, um, but they had a fight for it, you know, pretty much consistently for funding and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, on a regular basis in order to continue the program. So um, what happened is around 1995 or 1996, somehow it got leaked, the story of this got leaked and uh, Chicago Tribune and New York Times had headlines like, you won't believe what the government's been doing. They've been training psychics as spies, you know. And when you've got, you know, a top secret program and everybody knows about it. You know, um, it's kind of awkward. And so what they did typically in CIA or, you know, the intelligence services um, said, yeah, we've, you know, we've been trying stuff, but it really doesn't work that good. And so supposedly they canceled it around 1995 or 1996. Do you think they really did? <laughs> no, no. If they have the, that kind of weapon, why would they ever get rid of a weapon? The, the government's never going to get rid of a weapon like that because they, right. they would weaponize it. They would absolutely weaponize it. Well, it's it's an interesting thing because what I found, and you see, so, you know, so I'm Canadian, so I've never, ever worked for Stargate. Right? Yeah. But, but I've helped out um, finding missing people, tracking down bad guys, looking for hostages, things like that, okay? And so um, this guy named Skip Atwater, um, he was the, or, you know, Captain Fred Atwater, he was the manager of Stargate or all the other names that, you know, they had a, a division set up in uh, Fort Meade in Maryland on a military base there. And when Skip retired, oh, what happened before that? They had heard, so they were operating successfully in you know, super top secret. But they had read and heard about this guy named Bob Monroe in, down in Virginia, who had this place and had this special technology called Hemisync that was patented and could take people into deep, relaxed states. They could explore their own consciousness. 
And Captain Atwater thought that could be really good for our remote viewers. And so, you know, because they had trained, you know, a, a number of them by then. So he headed down to Virginia to meet Bob Monroe. And basically, they, you know, they did a background check on him and everything else to see if they could use that technology. And so they signed a contract with Bob Monroe to, uh, to explore that possibility and to help train some of their, uh, some of their remote viewers at that time. One of them being a fellow named Joe McMonagle, who was one of the best in the world. You know, Joe. I remember uh, him. Yeah, Joe had you know extreme abilities, but you know, it, it, he was a natural at it. He um, apparently uh, Joe, uh, you know, was over in Vietnam, got blown out of a helicopter, had some amazing experiences, and you know, and uh, so they pro they did this process for a whole bunch of years, and they used um, um, they found that it the hemisync or the special frequencies headphone um, you know uh, frequencies that they were using you know helped significantly in getting the remote viewers relaxed and allowing them to move into deep states of consciousness so they explored this for you know for those 23 years uh, pretty profoundly so when i came along and um and got to meet some of these folks that were in the original Stargate, you know, it just sort of blew my mind. I'm like, I'm back like a 12 year old again. Like, holy crap, you won't believe this. And it's just like, you know, oh my God, oh my God. You know, I got a secret, you know, but I can't tell you, <laughs> you know? And it was just so, so we, you know, we spent about 10 years uh, teaching remote viewing and helping out on various things. And um, some of the people, and I have to say this because people have this perception of the program. Um, because they describe it as military intelligence, which is like the biggest oxymoron in the world, right? <laughs> military intelligence. But what, you know, regardless of what the generals or the commanders or the joint chiefs of staff, regardless of what their impression or their thoughts were about this psychic program, I've met most of the people that were involved in it and, and worked with some of them. And I can tell you this, that you could not find more spiritual people on this planet, including the former you know, Pentagon director, Dale Grav. When I say that is because they understand, yeah, they've got a job to do. Maybe they got to help find some you know, missing people. Maybe they got to help the police. Maybe they got to you know, track down you know, bad guys somewhere. And but they understand it from a much larger perspective. And seriously, you could not for, find more spiritual people on this planet because they know our interconnectedness and they know where all of this comes from, including you know, the Pentagon director at that time, Dale Graff. And, and these are just you know, some wonderful people. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so I'm trying to think if I have any questions for you. So like, for, through your studies, like what what do you think I, I, what do you think triggers an OBE or an NDE? Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, you just dead. explained it. You just yeah. explained it. That I know it's the hemi. I know the hemisync can do it, but is it the is it the is it the giving? How do we how do we? You, sorry, my mind's all over the place. I'm trying to think the best question. Like, 
or how to phrase this, like how, it's all about getting into that left brain occupied so the right brain can explore consciousness. Right. Well, it's what, what it is, it's, and everybody on this planet experiences this, it's those moments of intuition, right? And so we teach this in remote viewing that your left brain will make up stuff because you want to be right. You want to, you know, if you, if we give you say a target and we, you know, ask you to, you know, describe certain things, you know, your left brain wants to guess, wants to make it right, right? But it's, you know, sheer practice that allows you to become more and more accurate all the time. So there's just some, <clears throat> some amazingly profound things. And I've got to, you know, do some, you know, sort of semi-official or whatever, um, remote viewing even of extraterrestrials and what's going on in the world today. And so there's- Well, you gotta tell me about that before we finish up today. Like, can you, can you tell me what, what, you're, what, you're, what you remote viewed as far as like extraterrestrials? Because uh, I'd love to know like what you, what you think is going on. Like, it's, it's so interesting, right? Like the disclosure, everything, it's, it's like, uh, it's really coming to a forefront. Well, there's <clears throat> there um, right now there is, and we've seen this e evolving over the years now. Okay, um, there I think you know, and and you've seen this happening, right? Uh, for years, it was sort of um, any notion or talk about UFOs or you know ET or whatever is sort of squashed, you know, to some degree. And it's like a controlled dissemination of information. And so if we look back over the years and what's happening right now, now we have intelligence services. We have, you know, the U.S. Navy and everything else. We have you know, all of these services now releasing information saying, yeah, look at this. Here's a, that's an actual UFO, whatever that is, a UFO, you know, and it just disappeared, you know, or when shooting past this jet fighter or you know it dove into the ocean you know and there's more and more information being revealed all the time and i think that given what's happening on our planet i think that we are now we are within a few years of the you know the full disclosure landing on the lawn here we go right and one of the things that we can judge from that, you know, and uh, if, if you're familiar with a guy named Paul Hallier, you remember his- Yeah, his yeah, the, minister, the Canadian Minister of Defense. Yes, yeah, he was, uh, <clears throat> for a whole bunch of years, he was, uh, you know, in charge of the Defense Department. So Paul had access to all of this stuff. And so he released it and said, this is, you know, it's not like, you know, one of the things that occurred was this, um, that brought sort of Paul out of the woods with this. Um, there was a, a revelation or a documentary that Stephen Hawking had been in, the, the fellow who was, uh, you know, considered to be the Einstein of, you know, of the modern day kind of thing, in the wheelchair, you know, so on and so forth. And Hawking in this documentary made the statement, to some degree, if my memory serves me, that if there was a possibility, if there was such a thing as intelligence somewhere in the universe, and they could somehow be here, you know, that if that was even extremely impossible, that if they could somehow traverse, you know, 
the uh, you know the speed of light across the universe to be here that we need to be really afraid because they would rape our planet of its resources and we would be like ants to them if there was such a thing which you know he's, he highly doubted okay well and what i'm told is paul hallier was speaking um, you know a few weeks after this documentary came out paul hallier was speaking at the ottawa press club or something like that <clears throat> and someone asked him this question about about um, Hawking's statement, and Paul unloaded on it. it means, you know, and Paul is now patched on too. But Paul said that <clears throat> we don't have to eat. We don't have to go look for them. They're here. They've been here for thousands of years. And he said, "Where do you think we get the technology that we have today?" And he's precisely right. All right. This has been sort of squished and squashed and everything, you know, but now the time is coming when we are going to see the landing on the lawn very soon. Because there's, you know, there's a dissemination of controlled information. And when we, um, when you think about it, this revelation, you know, that's been coming for, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 years, who is affected the most by if ET is real, who is affected the most? The government. Uh, no, government probably knows. Fundamental religion. Oh, oh yeah, them too. Well, I was thinking Which, the government wouldn't have as much control over us because maybe ET would have something to do with that. But you're right. <laughs> well, fundamental maybe. religion definitely has a lot. Yes. A big, well, the governments right? are sure governments are sure trying to control us now for the last you know couple of years. But you're right. The, the, the reality is the folks that are most affected by it are fundamental religion. How does that change things? If all of a sudden ET shows up, you know, how does that change the Quran? How does that change the Bible? How does that you know, affect all of the stories of man-made religion? It kind of throws it into, and so, this, this actually happened. And uh, so like when I'm talking about that, I was raised as a Catholic. So if you, if you take a look at the Vatican, the Vatican is a sovereign nation, all right? They don't have to show their books to Italy, <laughs> you know? So you got a, a sovereign nation and they know some stuff, right? So when you have what the Vatican, with an announcement by the Vatican, it's now two or three years ago, where, I'm told that this they put, posted this statement or whatever, put it out saying, gee, the existence of extraterrestrials really, you know, um, something to the effect that, you know, could be well within the, you know, Christianity's, you know, belief system, you know. And so, you know, when that's coming out and when they're talking about, Hey, extraterrestrials really, you know, isn't outside this, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know that they know something and something's coming, right? And so this is what, what I see that has been happening in, you know, in remote viewing and other things like that, is seeing this come along. But there's some interesting things that are, that are you know, surround this whole thing. Um, this is several years ago, you know, and I got to do, you know, some, you know, remote viewing um, on extraterrestrials or on the whole package, if you will. And um, there are 
you may remember this is I don't know how many years ago now um, there was a disclosure hearing um, somewhere in Washington DC or something like that and where they had the you know the captains or the generals of various um, nuclear missile bases or missile bases in America um, testifying and saying that well when there was a UFO that showed up or whatever, or what we thought was a UFO, all of our electronics would be shut down. We were useless. And so the sense was that, you know, and sort of the message out of that to some degree that they were putting out was <clears throat> that that's ET saying, no, you silly earthlings, don't do that. You're gonna destroy your world. You're gonna destroy, you know, your entire planet with you know nuclear fission, all right? Well, it's actually probably not so altruistic because what I've discovered is that nuclear fission, unlike fusion, all right? Nuclear fission is not contained in the Earth's atmosphere or even in the Earth dimension. What happens is nuclear fission hammers into other dimensions and it affects their travel and their communication. So what ET message is, is like a, a pissed off neighbor. It's like, would you stop that crap? You're buggering us up. You know, it's like a, a neighbor with a noisy dog. Like, you know, quiet that damn dog because nuclear fission hammers through it's interdimensional. It hammers out of our dimension into theirs and it affects them. So what they're saying is basically stop that crap, right? I, I agree. I, I agree. It, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I, it, it, uh, yeah. And, and but I, did you, when you remote viewed them, did it, did, did you see different species? Like, did, did you, uh, and where were they from? Does it, does it say or? <laughs> um, I don't know. My 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 experience is, you know, pretty much um, from my understanding, there are four different species, if you will, that are in our, um, you know, in our dimension. Um, I only am familiar with um, what we call the greys, uh, the ETs, you know, and and I've had some, you know, dealings with that, you know, so. I'm not sure how that applies. What what um what I am pretty sure about, you know, because people will ask, well, are they the good ones or the bad ones? Well, the reality is, I don't think, you know, I have not. I don't. I don't think there's any bad ones. If there was, we would be so toast and so long ago. But I, you know, to open that can of worms further, I think that we are actually, you know, we are the descendants of extraterrestrials, whether that's from Mars or wherever it was, you know, that we came from. So I'm, I'm not sure where somewhere else is. If you, um, what I discovered is that they have the ability, you know, to travel through the universe almost at the speed of thought. All right. And interestingly, even, you know, like faster than the speed of light. And NASA is actually working on, you know, um, prototypes of actual faster than the speed of light travel, um, you know, and you're going to see people like Elon, you know, and uh, other folks like that working in that in that sense as well. So I don't know where 
anywhere else is. I've had some experiences, um, you know, with extraterrestrials in remote viewing and even with crop circles, you know, things like that. Here's an interesting thought. Um, where do you think uh, crop circles come from? I have no clue. Where do they come from? <laughs> well, I can tell you, it's not Fred and Barney with a piece of binder twine and, you know, and a, and a piece of plywood, you know, <laughs> it would take like a month of Sundays to, to do that. And um, a lot, I met, I got to meet some really cool, interesting people. And uh, oh gosh, 10, 12 years ago, I met this lady named Beverly Trout. And Beverly was a former president of MUFON. And she was sort of a North American expert on crop circles. She'd been on like 40 or 50 different radio and television programs investigating and talking about crop circles themselves. And she came to a remote viewing program that um, Captain Atwater and I were you know, teaching in Virginia and we became really good friends. And um, she even was, had investigated crop circles in Saskatchewan of all places. And, there's something so profound about it. And when you take a look at it, you know, like where the crop circles are, an awful lot of them happen to be in England or, you know, in the UK. And what we see is, you know, and is a really profound um, artistic endeavor that physical humans, you know, it would take a month of Sundays to do that. And yet these are created or seem to be created overnight. So I actually got to do some remote viewing on where the crop circles come from. And now nobody's, you know, because they, these always, always the remote viewing targeting is generally, you know, blind, right? So remote viewer can't know anything about it because left brain would get involved and start making up stuff, right? So remote viewers do far better when they haven't got a clue what the target is. <clears throat> and uh, so I was given a target like that, that had to do with extraterrestrials or with, that had to do with crop circles, I should say, not having a clue what it's about. <clears throat> and uh, as I'm settling into it, I have, and unfortunately this doesn't happen other than maybe, you know, three out of 10 tries in remote viewing where I might have an actual out-of-body experience find myself somewhere at the target. And uh, so I'm laying on my bed in my office with my headphones on, listening to the you know, Monroe Institute, Hemi Singh, and I feel this shift. And the next thing I know, I'm floating over a field or standing in a field. And I'm thinking, oh, well, what the hell? I'm, you know, what am I back in Saskatchewan, farm boy, you know? And uh, so I sort of shook myself out of it and thought, you know, that's weird. But when I was standing there <laughs> or had that sense, it was like something went over my head, you know, in the physical world. It was like, I felt this vibration that was sort of like, what? And boom, I'm back in my body. And what on earth? You know, so I continued the process. Not sure what that was. I was just sort of maybe a childhood memory thing. I'm back in Saskatchewan in a wheat field. And very soon I'm back in wheat fields. Looking and feeling the energy and the power of it and everything else and, and these intricate designs. And so long story short, 
<laughs> um, I'm my belief or what I discovered, you know, because in this process, it's like not, you know, often, most often, it doesn't come together just in a neat little story package for remote viewers. Like, oh, here you go, take a look at this, you know. What happens is it becomes, you know, sort of in different impressions, different sounds, different smells, all of these different things. And I got the sense that this is graffiti because I was getting visions of you know, teenagers, you know, with a spray can spraying graffiti. I'm thinking, this is graffiti. And then all of it, you know, sort of, however, guess what? It's, you know, who creates <laughs> crop circles, extraterrestrial adolescents, teenagers. It's sort of like they've got the keys for the Volkswagen for the weekend and a couple of beers and they're all having fun. And here, oh my this. God, that's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought too. And, you know, and, and the reality is, you know, they sort of get in trouble for it, you know, and like maybe they're grounded for a millennium. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, yeah. but, but it's um, from my, from what I have seen and, um, you know, that it is, you know, sort of, yeah, adolescence or whatever, or, you know, extraterrestrial teenagers, if they're, you know, and, and they're just out having fun. And there are some famous videos out of the UK from, you know, from 10, 15 years ago, whatever, um, at night where it shows, you know, some balls of light dancing over a field. And then black helicopters come along and chase them away. And the next morning, there's a massive crop circle there. Right? So how did that happen overnight? It would take a month of Sundays for somebody, Fred and Barney, with a string to create all of this stuff. Um, or to make it visible, you know. So that seems to be, you know, and what's happened over, seems to be over the last 50, 100 years or whatever, that these crop circles are becoming more and more um, fabulous or intricate or, you know, amazing in design and things like that. And, and it literally would take forever. And somebody would see, if you got Fred and Barney out there, if you, you go out into Saskatchewan or Alberta and you start, um, it, you know, try and do a crop circle looking thing, you know, in somebody's field, you're going to get your butt in trouble because um, that's thousands of dollars in damage to crops. You know, some farmer is going to, you know, going to shoot you with a BB gun or something, you know. So this is what I sort of discovered. And, you know, so there's, and I mean, there's, you know, obviously many other things. And uh, one of the things that was a very powerful influencer um, from back in the time at Stanford Research Institute and later on in life, um, this guy named Pat Price that I mentioned before, that he was actually so good at what he was doing that he went and was hired directly by CIA. Um, but Pat died a few years after that. And some had speculated that he was targeted by the Soviets or something like that. But very, very amazing remote viewer. And this is about, oh my God, no, I don't know how long, 10 years ago, maybe. Um, when I was saying that there is a, a controlled dissemination of information um, about, uh, I can't remember the time period now, where suddenly um, CIA or intelligence services released what were super top secret remote viewings from back in the 70s and 80s or whatever of 
extraterrestrial bases on planet Earth, all right, by Pat Price. And wow. then later, and then later on, and with other remote viewers, they give the same targeting to some other remote viewers to sort of see if that could be confirmed. And a number of them, including Joe McMonigle, came up with amazing um, information on these extraterrestrial bases on planet Earth. And there are many of them. You know, the, probably the most, the closest to us would be Mount Hayes in Alaska, where there is, uh, you know, huge numbers of, you know, um, uh, UFO sightings and so on and so forth, you know. Yeah. So this was just, you know, and, and we were shocked and like, oh my God, why are they releasing this, you know? And, but it was like a full on release and, uh, you know, with all the information or, you know, the remote viewing information that was, you know, was put out and from Pat Price, from Joe McMonagle, from, you know, several others in the in Stargate. Wow, this is fascinating stuff. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to have you back on. We've been going over about, about an hour and 40 minutes. But like, this was this was so fascinating. Like, uh, thank you, first of all. And can you tell everybody where to find you, where to find the, uh, your book? I know you have a book. We didn't get a chance to talk about that. I'd like to have you back on to talk about your book. And, uh, and yeah, we'll have to do a part two for sure. For sure, but if you could tell everybody where to find you, where to find your book, and uh, where to find the Monroe Institute and everything, and and thank you so much. Well, <laughs> thank you. Um, my book is um, it, it, the title is Eyes of an Angel, and it's it's you know everywhere. It's probably the easiest just to get it off you know Amazon or online bookstores. Um, called Eyes of an Angel, and um, it it basically details you know um, several near death experiences and out of body experiences and my initial experiences at the Monroe Institute. And um, now to put this in perspective, I'm still a trainer at the Monroe Institute in Virginia. Uh, however, in my Canadian, uh, the Canadian facility we have here on Vancouver Island, um, essentially I'm retired, <laughs> tired all over again. And so, you know, we're uh, right now, I'm sort of in the middle of, uh, you know, the, the process of selling you know, selling my facility here and, um, you know, closing down the operation. And I may return to um, uh, operating or offering um, Monroe Institute um, workshops at, at uh, rented facilities, but uh, just sort of looking, you know, looking forward to retiring, um, you know, this part of the operation here in Canada. Had some health problems earlier on and, it, uh, you know, the stress and everything else just sort of pushed that. You know, so I really don't have, you know, might do some um, some additional remote viewing classes, weekend classes and things like that, you know, but uh, in the immediate future, it's just sort of, you know, my facility is up for sale and we're, we're not operating, you know, but they are certainly in Virginia and, uh, you know, and, and I still do, you know, teach uh, programs down there as well. Um, well this is i'm telling you you're one of my favorite guests like this was one of the funnest shows like i've ever done like seriously like your knowledge on these subjects is it's it's stellar like i i have to have you back okay well i'd be happy and, to do that all right well thank you paul and until next time have a have a good night um okay thank you rob take good care thanks all right bye
I don't know how to end this, but it's not recording. It's not recording. <laughs>